Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, and welcome back to another Behind the Knife Absite Board Review. This Today we're going to be taking you through the stomach. Uh, very high yield uh, topic for the Absite. Uh, before we get going, I just want to encourage everyone to go to our show notes um, and sign up for our mailing list. This will be really helpful to us. We're putting a lot of work into this, and uh, it's the one thing we um, would like to be able to connect with you guys and find out who you want to hear on the podcast, what topics you want us to cover in the coming months, and it'll be very helpful. So uh, hit us up on our mailing list. This is all we need is your email address, and we promise to not uh, have any solicitation on there. And uh, Jason, take it away. All right. So as you said, today's uh, topic is stomach. Again, a very high yield uh, topic for uh, the website and the boards. So um, as always, let's start with a little bit of uh, briefly a little bit of anatomy. So with the stomach, they seem to like to break things up into types. There's types of hiatal hernias, types of gastric ulcers, types of Seward-Stein classification. So let's just go through those real quickly. What are the different types of hiatal hernias? So for hiatal hernias, you can break these apart into four types. The first is the most common. Type 1 is a sliding hernia. These comprise 90%. The second type is purely a paraesophageal hernia, and these need repair. The third type is a combined sliding and paraesophageal hernia, which also needs repair. And the fourth type, uh, the entire stomach is in the chest in addition to another organ, such as the colon or the spleen, and these also need repair. Right. So as you said, you know, the type one, uh, those, if those are asymptomatic, those are okay to just the purely sliding hernia, the most common, you don't necessarily have to repair those, but the others have some degree of a paraesophageal hernia, um, which uh, do need repair. Uh, Kevin, how about the different types of gastric ulcers? Yes. One of those things I'm always reviewing, uh, right before the ab site. So, uh, type one is just, a an ulcer on the lesser curve, a type two, think of two ulcers. Uh, so it's the lesser curve and in the duodenum, uh, type three is the pre pyloric. And so it's kind of very distal in the stomach, the type three, the type four is the proximal lesser curve or the cardia of the stomach. And then type five can be kind of anywhere and are considered to be NSAID related. And which of those are the, a common question is which of those is associated with high acid output, which of those is. Uh, I believe that is type two and type three. Correct. So you think of your more you think of your more distal ones, the ones that of all involve the distal stomach, involve the duodenum. So it's your type two and your type three. And of course, an easy way to remember type two is there's two ulcers, one at the lesser curve and one at the in the duodenum. So type two has two ulcers. And again, type two and three high acid output, whereas types one, four, and five are more associated with the decreased uh, mucosal you know barrier, decreased mucosal protection. Uh, okay, last uh, for our little brief anatomy um, are, are the Stewart-Stein classifications. So these are anatomic classifications of the location of um, uh, GE tumors um, and become important when you're starting to think about what type of resection, what type of management for uh, those uh, gastric cancers. So we will, what are the three types of the Stewart-Stein classifications? So in this classification, you kind of move from on the esophagus down onto the stomach So for type 1, you're on the distal part of the esophagus from 1 to 5 centimeters above the GE junction. 
For type 2, you're on the cardia within 1 centimeter above and 2 centimeters below the GE junction. And for type 3, you're now onto the stomach at 2 centimeters to 5 centimeters below the GE junction. Perfect. All right. Well, let's move right into some clinically relevant um, uh, disease processes. So, uh, Kevin, uh, tell me a little bit about gastric volvulus. What, what is a gastric volvulus? So, the majority of gastric volvuluses are associated with a parasophageal hernia. Um, and there's a couple types of ways that these can rotate. Uh, the most common is what they call the organoaxial. And believe it or not, I've actually seen questions, and at least in the question banks on these type of things. Um, so this rotates along the axis of the stomach from the GE junction to the pylorus. So kind of in a vertical coronal plane it is where it rotates. Then you have the meso mesoaxial rotation. And this is along the short axis of the stomach, bisecting the lesser and greater curvature. Yeah, those can be a little bit confusing, but if you just picture it, you know, draw an axis from the G junction to the pylorus, and you imagine the stomach's flipping around that axis, that's your organoaxial. Um, and that's the most common form of a gastric volvulus. The other one is if you draw a line that bisects the stomach from the lesser to greater curvature, and you imagine the stomach twisting around that axis, that would be your mesoaxial and, and less common. Um, so what do we need to do about these, and what's important to know about these? Uh so these are very morbid uh, conditions and have a high mortality rate. Um, so if anyone is uh, suspected to have this, they need emergent surgery. What kind of, yeah, typically, you know, if you're, especially if you're giving this on a, you know, a test, you, these, you need to take these patients uh, for surgery. What uh, type of, what are you going to do in the operating room? Uh, so first you're going to reduce the hernia uh, and evaluate how much of the stomach is viable um, still, and hopefully it, it still is. And then at that point you'd perform a cruel repair, um, and to, to fix your hernia and then, a, a generally a gastropexy. And then, uh, if needed, a, a partial gastrectomy or whatever portion is devitalized. Sure. Absolutely. Those are our options. Now they may give you somebody that's super frail, super sick, and they, they really lay it out there that this person is not fit for an operation. What's a, What's another option? Uh, so you can just do endoscopic uh, decompression with a uh, single or double peg tube. Right. I think classically described is to do that double peg tube. That way you have two points of fixation so that it prevents it from revolvulizing. But if they're capable of undergoing an operation, certainly I think repair is, is the better option. Okay, let's move on and let's move into a very common disease process. That's GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. So woo, when I say, um, you know, you have to kind of delineate people are having GERD symptoms from just, you know, benign reflux versus something that's more ominous and associated with a malignancy. And we talk typically about alarm symptoms. What are some alarm symptoms for a gastroesophageal reflux? Yeah. So the alarm symptoms you're looking for in the question stem are dysphagia or dynophagia, weight loss, anemia, and GI bleeding. And these are clinically relevant because they may indicate uh, a higher likelihood of malignancy. So if people do have those, what are you gonna what are you gonna do with them? What are you gonna refer them for? What are you gonna do yourself? So you're gonna move them towards doing a workup for malignancy, primarily with upper endoscopy. Right. Those are the patients that you need upper endoscopy. But let's say they don't have any of those symptoms; they just have you know some reflux. Um, what are your initial management steps? So in these patients, you can start with just simple medical management, uh, which includes lifestyle modifications such as weight loss, elevation of the head of bed, uh, avoiding aggravating foods. Uh, you would add on a PPI, and if no improvement over several weeks on the PPI, then you would move the patient towards getting an EGD. 
uh, and in patients who ha- have failure of medical management or a desire to avoid lifelong PPI, uh, these would be patients who meet indication for surgical consideration. Right. And I think we're seeing more and more of this in practice that we're, we're, we're doing more anti-reflux surgery simply for the, the fact that there are downsides to being on a PPI for the rest of your life. And we're, we're finding out more and more of those uh, adverse reactions to the medication and they're expensive and sometimes people don't want to be on it. So um, certainly for, you know, surgically fit patients um, uh, undergoing some type of anti-reflux surgery, even nowadays, you know, the, the links or the magnetic sphincter, I wouldn't answer that on a test yet, but um, uh, certainly uh, surgical um, intervention is warranted in a large number of these patients. So let's say that we are considering doing an anti-reflux surgery. What type of workup do all patients who are undergoing anti-reflux surgery need? So for the workup, um, without question, they need uh, barium swallow, upper endoscopy, and esophageal manometry. And many times uh, to help confirm the diagnosis, you'll do a pH testing. Yeah, so I think that's pretty standard that you know, all patients who are getting any type of anti-reflux surgery are typically getting all of these um, studies um, to, to you know, rule out malignancy, uh, look at um, other complications, confirm that uh, the, confirm the reflux, um, and uh, certainly you need to rule out. What's, what's the manometry for? What is that to rule out before you do any type of wrap? So you want to make sure there's no underlying motility disorder before you do a full wrap. Right. Very frowned upon to do a full wrap in somebody who's got um, a motility disorder. Um, something that comes up pretty frequently, Kevin, is is this Demeester score. Um, when you're considering um, operating on somebody with reflux, what is a Demeester score? What, what are the components of the Demeester score? So what it measures is the percent of time that the pH in the esophagus is less than 4, the percentage of upright time with the pH that's less than four. And then also supine when you're supine, if it's less than four, and then the number of reflux episodes, um, that are greater than five minutes. And then the longest reflux episode. And so actually pressing a a button when they're having these episodes to help this, uh, pH monitor determine this. And then, so you add up this scoring system and if they have a Demeester score greater than 14.72 indicates reflux. Right. So total, again, total time, you're looking at pH less than four. So total time, time upright, time supine, uh, total number of episodes and longest episode. Uh, and then that magic number 14.72, um, which I think if you just know 14, you're probably good, uh, indicates, uh, that, um, the it's, a, it's a good indicator that a person might benefit from an anti-reflux procedure. So when we're thinking about all of these different, there's several different options that we'll get into, but what are the overall surgical goals, Kevin, of an anti-reflux operation? So you want to restore the normal anatomic position of the stomach and the GE junction. This is the primary goal of the surgery. Um, and this helps recreate the anti-reflux valve um, by having the, there's negative interthoracic pressure and there's uh, abdominal pressure. And having the stomach in the abdomen, it helps uh, make this anti-reflux valve. And then any hiatal hernia must be completely reduced. Um, and you really need to focus on a, a good um, high mediastinal dissection to free the esophagus to make sure it's freely mobile and the stomach is within the abdomen. And then uh, the, the crura of the diaphragm should be closed. And then, um, and like we said, you, you want to have a, when you're doing, say, a Nissen on this, you want to have a two centimeter long floppy fund application performed over a large bougie, such as a 54 French bougie. Right. So that's kind of a description of your classic Nissen or your 360 degree wrap. Again, you want to be able to fully reduce um, any parasophageal hernia, recreate the natural 
uh, anatomic position of the GE junction within the abdomen, close any defect, um, and uh, really make sure you get enough mobilization to get that, that uh, you know, several centimeters of, of uh, uh, the G junction, several centimeters below the diaphragm. Um, the full 260 floppy wrap, two centimeter floppy wrap over a large bougie. But Kevin Wonder, so we talk a lot about the different parts. That's a full wrap. We talk a lot about different partial wraps, and there's different clinical scenarios when that might be appropriate. Uh, what are some of the different partial wraps? <clears throat> the ones I think are most pertinent are the door, which is the anterior uh, 180 to 200 degree wrap, and then the toupee fund application, which is a posterior 270 degree wrap. Uh, these are the ones that um, in a patient that you may be concerned that they have some motility disorder, um, or a lot of times when you're doing a heller myotomy, uh, you'll do a door over top of that. Um, and these are uh, other options rather than the complete fund application. Right. So I, I don't think they'll get into the weeds of too much of this, especially in a board type scenario. There's not a whole lot of evidence to, to support, you know, one partial wrap over the other. Um, you know, some do show less post-optophagia with uh, a partial wrap compared to the 360 wrap. Um, however, the partial wrap might have ineffective control of the reflux. So certainly patients with esophageal motility shouldn't have a complete wrap, but the choice of one partial wrap over another is going to depend a lot on the institution and the individual surgeon experience. Um, and as I mentioned before, there are newer technologies out there, these magnetic sphincters, the links um, are, are gaining traction. There is some good five-year data on that, but I don't think that this is, uh, maybe you guys disagree, but I don't think that this will make its way onto the boards quite yeah. yet. There is one sort of reflux uh, that I think is important to be aware of. So say you have your pH uh, monitor in and, and it, you don't get a good Demeester score on it and they have a little bit of atypical symptoms. One thing you want to think of is, is bile reflux as a, a source of GERD. We see that frequently in a lot of patients that have had previous GI surgery uh, will be at highest risk for this. And sometimes uh, you may have to do a Roux and Y uh, to help. Uh, prevent something like this. And what kind of what kind of test can you do to test for bile reflux into the esophagus? It wouldn't be your pH probe, but it'd be something else. Yeah, here you could use impedance testing. Perfect, absolutely. Um, okay, so uh, woo, let's say that uh, you could just get done doing a beautiful Nissen uh, full three hundred and sixty wrap, um, and uh, you get uh, intraoperatively, uh, anesthesia tells you that they're having a little bit of trouble ventilating the patient. What are you thinking about? So here, because of the vicinity of all the structures uh, and the dissection to the mediastinum, you'd worry about capnothorax or CO2 insufflation making its way into the chest. Uh, so to avoid tension capnothorax from developing, you want to enlarge the tear uh, if you can find a tear. Uh, additionally, you could place a red rubber catheter with one end into the pleural tear and the other end into the abdomen. And this essentially equalizes the pressures between the chest and the abdomen to help uh, normalize this and prevent the tension capnothorax from developing. Uh, finally, you can also use a needle to decompress the chest intraoperatively. Uh, and in order to do that, you want to make sure that the patient preoperatively is prepped up to the lower chest. Okay, so that's somebody who has you know a little pleural tear during your dissection and has a symptomatic capnothorax intraoperatively. Alternatively, let's say your patient shows up to the PACU for whatever reason they get a chest x-ray because you're somebody who gets a routine chest x-ray on your, on your uh, mediastinal mobilizations post-op and you see uh, a small two-centimeter capnothorax or the nurse calls you and says, uh, the radiologist is saying they have a pneumo. What do you want to do with that patient? Yeah, so 
most of those, the capnothoraxes will resolve on their own, so no intervention is needed. Um, I've created a, a number of these capnothoraxes myself, and uh, the vast majority of them don't cause any problems, even intraoperatively. But the thing you want to make sure is they may have a question where they say, you're doing a mediastinal dissection and the CO2, the end tidal CO2 goes up to 60. This would be concerning for malignant hyperthermia and some other uh, conditions, but this is why it's important to have good communication with the anesthesiologist. Hey, we're, we have, a, we have a, a tear in the pleura. We are insufflating CO2 into the chest. And generally, um, you know, there's no bad consequences of that. And you just suck out the chest as you finish the case and close the pleural tears as best you can. Um, so that, that, that could be a question is, um, high CO2 in a, in during a mediastinal dissection. Sure. And you certainly have to start thinking about all those really bad things when you have an elevated CO2 intraoperatively. Uh, how about post-op management? Uh, Wu, um, you know, what are some just kind of key principles for your routine post-op management for the, after these anti-reflux procedures? So for all these patients, you should consider scheduling anti-emetics uh, immediately in the post-op period to avoid any nausea or retching uh, that could compromise the wrap. Uh, they should be on a soft diet for a few weeks after the wrap, and they should avoid meats, raw vegetables, bread, carbonated beverages for four to six weeks postoperatively. Okay. How about some management uh, of some, uh, you, you have a, a wrap that goes great um, on post-op day one, day two, the patient's complaining of a little bit of dysphagia. They're having a little bit of difficulty swallowing. What, what do you think about that? So dysphagia postoperatively is very common. Uh that said, if the patient has severe dysphagia, you would consider getting an esophagram to assess uh, the wrap. Yeah, and I would say I would say all these patients probably get some degree of dysphagia post-op. So a little bit post-op day one and two is not that unsurprising. You can just kind of ride it out as the swelling and everything goes down. It usually gets a little bit better. Certainly severe dysphagia, um, you, you need to investigate that. Especially, uh, Kevin, how about you're given the situation on post-op day one uh, that your patient can't even handle their own secretions? What are you going to do with that patient? Yeah, this is very provider dependent, but uh, a lot of times if, if it's that severe and uh, there's nothing passing through, uh, you may have to reoperate and uh, redo the rep. Right. And I think that'd be my answer on an abort type scenario. If they give me that situation where post-op day one, patient can't handle their own secretions, they'll probably give you an option of a CT scan esophagram. I think I would answer just go back to the operating room because your wrap's likely too tight. Uh, okay, moving on. Uh, let's talk about a little bit more about uh, hiatal hernias. Uh, Woo, how, are, how do we typically find these? So a lot of times these are often seen on chest x-ray, but uh, more sensitive than that, barium swallow, CT of the chest, uh, and EGD can be used in various combinations depending on the individual patient presentation. To manage these, you do not necessarily repair type 1 hernias, uh, particularly if there's absence of reflux disease. Repair of these is not indicated. Um, What's a type 1 again? What, what is a type 1 hiatal hernia? The type 1 was a sliding type hiatal hernia. Okay. That said, all symptomatic parasophageal hernias should be repaired, especially those with obstructive symptoms or those who have undergone volvulus at some point. Uh, asymptomatic parasophageal hernias should, should be repaired on a routine elective basis if the patient is a good surgical candidate, and watchful waiting is an option for asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients who are poor surgical candidates. Yeah, and I think I would, I would err towards repairing these, um, especially in a test-type scenario. Any parasophageal hernia should likely undergo repair. It's just a question of uh, if it's done on an urgent or a routine basis. 
you know, in, in, in real life, if, you know, your 90 year old lady who's had her parasophageal hernia for the last 40 years is incidentally found, uh, and she's a poor surgical candidate, not necessarily all these are getting, are getting fixed, but I think in, in a board type scenario, I would err on the, the side of, of repairing these. Okay. Uh, Kevin, so how do we go about repairing these? What are some surgical principles? Okay. Uh, we've, kind of discuss this, but repetition is the key to adult learning here. So uh, generally we're, we're approaching these laparoscopically or with the robot now. Um, and the biggest com components again are to reduce the hernia and to reduce the hernia sac. Uh, and this should be completely mobilized and, and brought into the abdomen. And then, like we said, you want to have good mobilization of the esophagus to re-approximate that gastroesophageal junction into the abdomen. Yep. So we need to completely mobilize the hernia sac and excise the hernia sac. That's a key step to decrease recurrence rates. What about the use of mesh? When, when do we use mesh? When should we use mesh? So in patients uh, that have very large hiatal hernias, uh, mesh is a good option. And, uh, and a lot of times in patients that have recurrent hernias, um, but if it's a small, uh, simple hiatal hernia with a, a defect that's easily closed, I don't think you'd use mesh. Yeah, this is one of those things where there's a lot of evidence one way or the other, and, and uh, the practice varies widely by surgeon. So I, the good news for test takers is usually when there's controversy like that, it's unlikely that they're going to ask you whether or not you should be using your mesh with your, with your hiatal hernia repairs. Um, okay, and then so uh, reduce it. Maybe you close the defect. Maybe use a mesh. Maybe not. Uh, what what yeah. else? What's next? And so I think a, a question could be, uh, you know, you want to use uh, permanent suture to close, a, a large permanent suture to close the crura, uh, sometimes with uh, pledgets. Um, and then you're going to do your fund application. Uh, and so generally you're going to do your uh, Nissen fund application, uh, a large floppy fund application over a large bougie, such as a 56 French bougie. What are some options if you if you if you do that you mobilize everything but you you just give me two options for you can't mobilize enough esophagus you do a high mediastinal immobilization you can't get enough esophagus uh, it's it's a little bit tight it's pulling yeah, that down into the stomach right. and so yeah you certainly don't want to stop here because you're going to have a recurrence uh, so the uh, colis gastroplasty uh, would be one of the first options yep so an esophageal lengthening procedure um, what's another option if it's just a little bit tight you're a little concerned I guess uh, if it if, if you really can't get that length, a gastropexy or gastrostomy tube could help uh, prevent the recurrence. Right. So if it's not bad enough where you think you need to do an esophageal lengthening, but you, you want a, a little added security against a, an early recurrence, uh, a gastropexy um, is uh, certainly a reasonable option. Okay. Uh, so from GERD, high anal hernia, the next natural step we're going to go into is uh, talking about some uh, gastroduodenal ulcer disease. So, Wu, tell us a little bit, uh, just basics, epidemiology, that type of thing about uh, about uh, gastroduodenal ulcers. Yeah, so one of the key risk factors you have to be aware of is that of H. pylori. Uh, H. pylori is found in 75% of gastric ulcers and 95% of duodenal ulcer patients. Uh, so for these patients, you want to uh, do a trial of triple therapy to include PPI, clarithromycin, and amoxicillin or metronidazole. Yep. You want to have that triple therapy definitely memorized. That's something that's going to come up in written boards and oral boards. So make sure you have your regimen. Uh, there's a couple of different regimens out there, but just pick one and stick with it. Um, and, uh, and just know that off the top of your head, but so, yeah, very common in gastric ulcers, almost universal in duodenal ulcers that it's H pylori is, is, is the culprit. Um, what are some, uh, what's, uh, one of the complications that you can, or some of the complications you can have from ulcer disease? 
So one of the key complications that you would see on a test scenario is that of upper GI bleeding. Uh, so for these patients, you want to start with your typical resuscitative maneuvers. Uh, you want to place an NG tube and move the patient towards early, rapid upper endoscopy, which is usually diagnostic and therapeutic. You can use endoscopic clips, thermocoagulation, injection of vasoactive or sclerosing agents to help control the bleeding. Yeah, absolutely. So it'd be very quick with these upper GI bleeds. Uh, endosco- endoscopy is usually the first uh, step for both diagnosis and treatment. Uh, and uh, endoscopic therapies are generally pretty effective, usually 90% or greater effective at stopping the bleeding. Oftentimes we'll see things graded as in increasing people's risks for recurrence of a bleed. So what are some things you can see on endoscopy and, and what does that say about the chances of having a recurrent bleed? Yeah, so the highest risk factor is that of an active bleeding pulsatile vessel. This gives you an 80% or higher than 80% risk of rebleeding. Uh, second is a visible vessel, which gives you up to about a 50% chance of rebleeding. Uh, third is an adherent clot, which warrants about a 15 to 25% risk of rebleeding. And then lastly is a clean base, clean ulcer base, which gives you less than a 5% chance of rebleeding. So let's say they, you have an endoscopic intervention, it works. Uh, 24 hours later, though, they have a recurrent bleed. What's the next step? So in these patients, the second step is, again, repeat upper endoscopy. Right, repeat endoscopy, uh, repeat endoscopy. Angiography is an option, but if for first re-bleed, um, uh, repeat endoscopy is going to be the answer. What do you have to worry about if you do your, uh, you do your endoscopy, you stop your bleeding, but you see a large uh, you know, gastric ulcer? What are you concerned about? So you want to consider biopsying this ulcer to evaluate for malignancy, as well as to obtain antral biopsies to test for H. pylori. Uh, so H. pylori and NSAIDs are generally the most common causes of gastric bleeding, but you have to be aware that an underlying malignancy could present as an ulcer like this in approximately 5% of cases. Right, especially with gastric ulcers. Like I said, you know, duodenal ulcers, the, 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 it's more common for H. pylori, high acid put, output, that type of thing. But for gastric ulcers, you have to be very concerned for malignancy, so you should always consider, um, and you should always obtain biopsies if possible. I think a, a good way to help remember uh, for the rebleeding of what the next step should be, if the patient is stable, I think endoscopy and angiography will be your answers until they have made that clear that everything has failed. Um, but if the patient is unstable in any way, that would uh, lead to surgery to fix the problem. Uh, yeah, Kevin. So that's a great point. Um, so what's, let's talk about, let's talk about that then. So gastric ulcers, um, let's say they're unstable, can't be controlled endoscopically. Uh, what are you going to do? So it can't be controlled endoscopically, um, especially a gastric ulcer. I'm going to lean heavily on my, uh, IR doc to do some angiography. Okay. You don't have IR available. Uh, and we've tried two attempts at endoscopy. Yep. And they're unstable and they're still bleeding. Um, so at that point I would, uh, take them to surgery. And what are you going to do? And I'm sorry, this is a gastric ulcer again. Well, yeah, we did your endoscopy. You see a gastric ulcer. Okay. So, uh, midline laparotomy, anterior gastrotomy, and oversewing the bleeding area with biopsy. Yep. So midline laparotomy, anterior gastrotomy, oversew the bleeding area. Be sure you biopsy, make sure you biopsy, um, and then close your gastrotomy. Okay, let's start, let's move on a little bit further down the GI track and talk about those uh, duodenal ulcers. So bleeding duodenal ulcers, uh, how are you going to manage these, Will? So I'd say that the initial management is basically the same as any upper GI bleeding or even a gastric ulcer. Uh, so you're going to resuscitate, place an NG tube, 
a rapid EGD for diagnosis and treatment. Uh, you're going to try endoscopy, first line, second line, possibly consider angiography, and surgery would be reserved for any uncontrolled bleeding or any uh, hemodynamic instability. Yeah, and this is one of those things I think we, you know, we surgery, surgery and surgery residents manage a lot, um, and it shows up often on written and oral boards, and you just need to be sure that you, you verbalize everything. So you're going to put them in a monitored setting. You're going to get two large bore IVs. You're going to type and cross them. All those things that you kind of in, intuitively do, um, you just need to be sure that you're, you're verbalizing, especially if you're in an oral boards type scenario. So you said uh, surgery reserved for uncontrolled bleeding. Um and uh, hemodynamic instability. We talked a little bit about surgery you do for a bleeding gastric ulcer. What are you going to do for a bleeding duodenal ulcer? Yeah, so here you do a longitudinal anterior duodenotomy. You'd control the bleeding with sutures placed uh, in the superior and inferior positions uh, of the ulcer to take care uh, to avoid this common bile duct. And you can ligate the GDA above the duodenum if the bleeding continues after that. Uh, you should then approximate the ulcer crater and close the duodenotomy transversely. Yep, absolutely. So yeah, that's a good option. You, you mentioned it there. If you if you if you can't control the bleeding from within the ulcer base, you can you can come up above the duodenum and ligate the GDA uh, would be uh, your next step there. Uh, so this is kind of a deep dark hole. This is a more advanced level question. Uh, but Kevin, what kind of um, uh, and this might come up on oral boards. What kind of uh, suture and what kind of needle are you going to ask for? So. In this situation, I would ask for an ovike rule, uh, UR6, to have that acute uh, curve on the needle to really come around the, the the vessel. Right. I think that's a perfect answer. And that's, the, that's what I would say, too, is you need that, that curve of that UR6 needle to really get down in there and get around that, that bleeding vessel. Okay. Uh, so aside from bleeding, what's another common complication from ulcer disease? So that would be perforation. Okay. What are you going to do about that? So I'd start with the initial uh, resuscitative measures, start fluid resuscitation, NGD compression, acid suppression. In this case, I'd add on antibiotics for empiric coverage of gram-negative rods, oral flora, anaerobes, and fungi. Again, uh, don't forget that fungus one. It's a commonly forgot, but it was with esophageal and gastric perforations, you have to add fungal coverage. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, one of the go-tos could be ampicillin, ceftriaxone, metronidazole, and, and fluconazole. Uh, and once this is initiated, then I would move the patient towards surgical management. Uh, and this I would do with an omental patch repair. Okay. And this came up, uh, this came up the other day, actually, in one of our morning reports. But can you ever, is there ever a situation where you can manage these non-operatively? Maybe a knot on the ab site. Uh, but, you know, if it's a very uh, small contained perforation, a lot of times the body actually does the job for you of performing the gram patch. So if they get they have a swallow study and there's no leak and the patient is not peritoneal and they are not, uh, you know, obviously septic, it might be a situation in which it can be performed uh, non-operatively with antibiotics and, and GD compression. Yeah, I think if you if you have a patient that they see a little bit of you see a little bit of free air on CT scan, they're totally stable, non-peritoneal. Uh, they've likely had a perforated you know ulcer that's sealed off, and I think you said it that you. We've all been in the situation where we've peeled off nature's grand patch just to put on our own. So, yep. One thing I think is important uh, to talk about here, and we may talk about bariatric complications later, but uh, most of us now are not seeing too many of these perforated duodenal ulcers, but we're seeing marginal ulcer perforations. Right. And, uh, you know, it's the same repair, but this is in the patients that are uh, post-gastric bypass. Um, you have stomach abutting jejunum uh, where they don't have the normal defense mechanisms for acid. 
So a lot of these patients will have started taking NSAIDs, will be smoking, will be off their PPI, and it really puts them at risk for these uh, marginal ulcer perforations in which you'd perform the same procedure. Yeah, and that's that's going to be more and more important for everybody to know as uh, you know, bariatric surgery is is uh, shows no sli- no sign of slowing uh, in our population. Uh, and again, well, I wouldn't answer any of that on the boards. I wouldn't answer non-operative management of perforations. I'd be very hesitant to do that. They would have to very heavily lean me in that direction to answer that on boards. Um, so we're talking about grand patches and no mental patches. We, uh, can you describe what we mean by that? Yeah. So you essentially close the perforation. Uh, you would use a seromuscular bite if you're able to approximate it. And then you would secure omentum over the side of the perforation with three to four sutures. Okay. Uh, so let's say that this is a patient that uh, is, is actually has a complete medical record in the system. We know that they have been uh, treated for H. pylori in the past um, with a PPI, and they have had documentation of eradication of their H. pylori, but they have refractory ulcer disease. What is, uh, are some things you should consider? So here you would consider doing a truncal vagotomy and pyloroplasty. Uh, to help control the input of acid development? Well, you should definitely consider a, an acid-reducing procedure, and that's one of your options is the truncal vagotomy and pyloroplasty. Kevin, what are some other options? So you can do the highly sl- selective vagotomy where you preserve the motor innervation of the pylorus, eliminating the need for a drainage procedure. So this is where you get uh, very close to the lesser curve of the stomach and divide uh, the branches of the vagus nerve innervating the stomach there. Um and then, uh, of course, the more classic operation is the vagotomy and antrectomy. Uh, this has a high morbidity, um, and you have to have a you know generally a Bill Roth reconstruction after this. Um, and so, this is reserved for patients uh, with anatomic in- indications such as large antral ulcer, pyloric scarring. And so, the thought is you're removing both the innervation and the acid-producing cells of the stomach and the antrum. Um, so this is really going to give you the, the best acid suppression and, and least risk of recurrence. But like we said, uh, the reconstruction has uh, problems on its own. Okay, that's a perfect segue into the next segment, which we talk about uh, you know, post-gastrectomy syndrome. So you've done your antrectomy, you've done your, your gastrectomy for whatever reason. Um, what, what am I talking about when I say post-gastrectomy syndromes? Like, for instance, what's, what's retained antrum syndrome? What does that mean? Yeah, so here you have retained antral tissue within the duodenal stump after a gastric resection, and the G-cells are bathed in an alkaline fluid that leads to continuous gastrin release. Uh, This then increases acid production in the proximal stomach remnant and leads to ulceration. And that brings up a good point that we we forgot to mention, actually, when we were talking about our duodenal and our gastric ulcers. So what else do you have to think about if if they've been treated for H. pylori and they have multiple, especially multiple duodenal ulcers, what, what test or what blood test do you want to send? Yeah, you might consider checking a gastrin level. Right, check to see if they maybe have a gastrin secreting tumor or some other hypergastrin uh, disease process going on. Uh, okay, so back to our retained antrum syndrome. How do, you, how do you treat these? So these patients, you would start on a PPI and you would refer them for vagotomy and resection of the retained antrum. Okay. How, uh, Kevin, moving on to some of the different dumping syndromes. This shows up pretty frequently and there's a couple different kinds. It can get a little confusing. So clear it up for us. Yeah. So dumping syndrome. And like we said, this is in post-gastrectomy patients, generally with a, like a Bill Roth II reconstruction. Or like you said, the bariatric patients. You can, you can definitely see these in a bariatric patient. So uh, these are actually very common. So after eating, uh, patients will either you know get symptoms such as tachycardia, diaphoresis, dizziness, and flushing. 
So now it's differentiate between the two types. And like I said, I don't know if it's the question banks or the actual ab site, but I've seen this all the time. So the early dumping syndrome, this is 20 to 30 minutes after a meal. Uh, this is due to the abrupt hyperosmolar load to the small intestine. So the small intestine is not used to handling this type of load. And uh, this is what causes those symptoms. Uh, the late dumping symptoms, this is, you know, significantly further after a meal, one to four hours. And this is due to rapid carbohydrate load in the small intestines, resulting in a large insulin surge and rebound hypoglycemia. Um, and so you can really help differentiate that by discussing with the patient when they're having these symptoms. And this, this leads to how you uh, treat it. And generally, the majority of these are treated by adjusting their eating habits with small meals, no sugary drinks. And then if it's, if it's truly refractory, uh, some patients can be put on octreotide. Okay. Well, so let's say you've done, you have, you have a patient who had previously undergone a gastrectomy or a partial gastrectomy and a, you know, Bill Roth, Bill Roth one or Bill Roth two, um, say Bill Roth two, um, reconstruction. Uh, what, uh, is a complication you can see with those patients when they get that, that bile reflux? Yeah. So this would be, uh, alkaline reflux gastritis. Uh, you could diagnose it with impedance studies, as we mentioned before, uh, and you would start with medical therapy, such as prokinetic agents and bile acid binding resins. Perfect. Yep. So medical treatment uh, is the first step, prokinetic agents um, and uh, bile acid binding resins. Uh, what's the surgical management of that if they're, if that's not working? So you would convert to a RU&Y. Historically, uh, Patients could have a Braun enterostomy, but the Roux and Y seems yeah, to be Yeah, so the better. answer on the test would be converted to a Roux and Y. Uh, the Braun enterostomy is, you may see that if you're operating for other reasons, because that, that, that used to be fairly common. Bonus points, what's a Braun enterostomy? On the Bill Roth 2, where, uh, where the loop of jejunum is going up to the connection of the stomach, proximal and distal to that, you anastomose those, uh, the afferent and efferent limbs, um, so it actually bypasses the stomach, so the bile can go straight past the stomach. Correct. That's, yeah, that's theoretically how it should work is you create a, an osmosis between your afferent and efferent limb of your, of your Bill Roth reconstruction. And, and this is important. Uh, a lot of times when you're doing a Roux and Y gastric bypass, you're measuring at least 50 centimeters for your Roux limb. A big reason for that is, is you want to prevent bile reflux. If you have too short of a Roux limb, uh, you can get, you can still get bile reflux with a Roux and Y gastric bypass. Another thing we see pretty frequently show up on tests are these afferent loop, afferent loop syndromes. Uh, Kevin, can you clear that one up for us? It'd be a little confusing as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is when the, you know, especially thinking of a Bill Roth II anatomy, uh, you have acute or chronic obstruction of an afferent limb uh, following a Bill Roth II reconstruction. So if, you, if you're an intern and you forgot your Bill Roth II, just go look at a picture of this. It'll really help uh, help you really visualize this but so you have a, you have an obstruction a, acute or chronic obstruction and this can cause a number of problems um the the problems are from the increased luminal pressure of the efferent limb uh and they can cause obstructive jaundice cholangitis pancreatitis from the backup pressure uh the most concerning problem if this is an acute issue and this is why knowing surgical history and patients that come in with abdominal pain is so important is you worry about a, a duodenal uh, stump blowout um, and then kind of one of the more common questions we see in the patients that have a chronic afferent limb syndrome is the bacterial overgrowth in that limb. So the bacteria deconjugate the bile acids, which can lead to steatorrhea, malnutrition, and vitamin B12 deficiency, uh, leading to megablastic anemia. So, so just to clarify for the bacterial ogre, overgrowth in the chronic afferent limb syndromes, first of all, remember these are in Bill Roth II anatomies, and uh, the bacteria that are 
have overgrowth in the afferent limb cause deconjugation of those bile acids. So now those bile acids are not helping absorb those fats. Um, and that's what results in the steatorrhea, malnutrition, and vitamin B12 deficiencies. Yeah. And it's kind of a little bit confusing to distinguish between these, you know, cause there's, there's a couple different processes going on that can cause the patient to get sick. So if they have an obstruction of their afferent limb, uh, and it's, it's like a bowel obstruction. So those patients are going to present like a bowel obstruction and, uh, those patients are, will need more kind of urgent, uh, surgical intervention. And, uh, I think if I was given that the patient that presented with those type of symptoms, I would be very quick to, you know, get the CT scan very quick to uh, intervene operatively. If it's more the bacterial overgrowth, you get somebody who has, you know, steatorrhea, malnutrition, vitamin B12 deficiency. I think the first step I would do would be treat with antibiotics. Um, there's a very high relapse rate with these patients. So they do generally need, um, a conversion to a Roux-en-Y or a Bill Roth one. But I think if it was that type of question where I'm given what's the next step and they give me that type of patient, I would probably reach for antibiotics first. Yeah. And I, I think this is an important question that they could ask is giving you a patient with a bowel obstruction and it may be leading you to the standard bowel obstruction regimen of NG tube decompression, Absolutely, serial yeah. abdominal exams, where the answer in a patient with a Billroth 2 with any kind of concerns of dilation of their afferent limb uh, would be emergent surgery. Yeah. Uh, again, and this, you see many correlations correlations between this and the bariatric population where that's the other, uh, you know, something like an internal hernia. And they may be leading you to manage that like your typical bowel obstruction with NG decompression. But as with afferent lip syndrome, your NG is not doing anything. It's not decompressing anything. So those patients need surgical intervention. Great point. Okay, so let's move on to a big one, uh, gastric cancer. Uh, so, Wu, what are some risk factors for gastric cancer? So H. pylori, smoking, heavy alcohol intake, high salt, and nitrates. Yep, those are your classic uh, risk factors. Um, there's a couple different types. Uh, what's the Lorin classification? Uh, how are how are these gastric cancers uh, broken up? So you can break them up into intestinal type or diffuse type gastric cancers. Okay. Um, well, how about the the genetics? Uh, there's a, these oftentimes run in families. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So actually, most gastric cancers are sporadic, uh, but there is about a five to ten percent familial component with a three to five percent inherited syndrome. Uh, and w- uh, briefly, just uh, name off some of those hereditary syndromes associated with gastric cancer. So for hereditary diffuse gastric cancer, you want to think about uh, an autosomal dominant disorder secondary to germline mutation in CDH one. And that's a that's a fairly uh, common commonly tested one for whatever reason. This this CDH one, you need to know that association. And and how do you treat these patients who have this autosomal dominant disorder? So between age 18 to 40, you want to take these patients for a prophylactic gastrectomy. And I think that's why that's important. That's why this one shows up on test because these are, these are, it, it, it's a big deal that you need to do a prophylactic gastrectomy on these patients. So definitely know that association. Um, and there's, uh, it's also important to know that uh, women with the CDH1 are at increased risk of uh, breast cancer, similar to uh, BRCA patients. So, uh, so that's one of the important ones to know. How about some other ones? So other hereditary syndromes, you want to think about Lynch syndrome, which is a DNA mismatch gene. Uh, you want to think about juvenile polyposis syndrome, which is attributed to the SMAD4. Uh, you want to think about Peutzeger syndrome and FAP. And what gene is associated with FAP? The APC gene on 5Q21. Yep. It's painful to know those, but they're quick, easy points if you just memorize those. So uh, again, repetition, just uh, eventually they'll sink into your brain to where you'll reflexively pick the right answer and you won't even know why. 
So um, kind of, I can remember CDH1 as the uh, FAP of the stomach. Um, and for whatever reason, that helps me. Perfect. Um, okay, so gastric cancer, how, what's your, how do you stage these patients? So these patients are staged with the standard kind of staging with the routine labs, the CT, chest, abdomen, pelvis. And then it's similar in a lot of ways to esophageal cancer. Uh, you're going to get the EUS, the endoscopic ultrasound with FNA. And then a lot of times a PET scan is used at the time of uh, staging. Yep. So this is another one of those cancers that, that will typically get a PET scan. How about the role of uh, staging laparoscopy? So for staging laparoscopy, the NCCN recommends laparoscopic staging with peritoneal washing for clinical stage greater than T1B tumors if chemoradiation or surgery is being considered. And what's, uh, we'll get a little bit into some staging pearls, but that's another one of those important distinctions you need to know is a T1A, T1B. So what's a T1B? Yeah, so T1B is uh, when the tumor invades the submucosa. Uh, whereas T1A is the tumor simply invades the lamina propria or muscularis mucosa, but does not get into the submucosa. So it's the same as for es- esophageal. So that's uh, this makes it. It's always nice when you can memorize the staging system, and it's it's diff- it's the same between two different uh, locations. So yeah, the T1B is another. That's an important distinction. So walk us through the T staging. Uh, just broad strokes. What do we need to know? So broadly, again, T1A. You want to know about whether it gets into the submucosa, T1B, it does get into that submucosa. T2, it's getting into the muscularis propria. T3, it's invading the subserosa. And T4, it invades through the serosa and into adjacent structures. Again, differs from the esophagus in that the esophagus does not have a serosa, but the stomach does. Okay, and how about our, our nodal status? So here, N1 is one to two nodes, N2 is three to six nodes, and N3 is seven or more nodes. Okay. And the M status is always my favorite. M0 is, is no metastasis. M1 is, is distant metastasis. I can, I always find that one easy to remember. Uh, what constitutes, Kevin, what unconstitutes unresectable gastric cancer? So if you're laparoscopic, uh, staging, uh, you find peritoneal involvement, uh, that would make it unresectable. If you have distal mets, um, if you have root of mesentery or periaortic nodal disease confirmed by a biopsy, and then encasement of, of any major vascular structures. And the, the splenic vessel is not considered a major vascular structure. Yeah, so that's an important one to know. They may give you that, that, you know, they, on your staging, you find out that the tumor is invading the splenic vessels, and they'll ask you, um, you know, what you want to do. If you want to give palliative, you know, or definitive chemotherapy, or whether that's a surgical patient, that's resectable de- disease. Um, and you can take the spleen if there's, if there's invasion of the splenic vessels. Um, who gets neoadjuvant therapy for gastric cancer? So neoadjuvant should be considered in any patient with with any nodal involvement, so even N1 disease, uh, as well as any patient with T2 or higher. So again, look for invasion of the muscularis propria or anything beyond that. Uh, those patients should get neoadjuvant therapy. Great. So that's an important distinction there. Neoadjuvant therapy for T2 or higher disease and, of course, NEN. Which is very similar to the esophagus and even the rectum for that matter. Yeah, it's good to, to kind of make those associations, but uh, um, you definitely need to memorize it for each indi- individual one and not get tripped up. Uh, so let's talk about surgical principles for resection of gastric cancer. Kevin, go. So uh, when you resect the stomach, uh, you're going to get at least four centimeter margins. I've seen five in a lot of places. And you need a good lymph node harvest. Uh, these are pretty uh, aggressive cancers with at least 15 nodes. 
Um, so there's two types of gastrectomies that you can generally do. Uh, you can do the total gastrectomy depending on the location of the tumor versus the subtotal gastrectomy. Um, so the subtotal gastrectomy is preferred for distal lesions, like uh, Dr. Doe was saying earlier, the C-wort type 3. Uh, the proximal tumors will, will generally need a, a total gastrectomy, and that's because of the, the submucosal spread of the tumor. Uh, you need those uh, five cent, 4 to 5 centimeter margins. Um, and so then when you do a total gastrectomy, you'll actually perform an esophago-jejunostomy, where the distal portion of the esophagus um, I've seen may need to be resected for adequate margins. Yeah, and then tumors that are going higher to that, the tumors crossing into the GI junction are, are really treated like esophageal cancers, um, um, you know, with esophagectomy and, and falling under those algorithms. Um, yeah, four centimeter margins. Five, like I said, you've seen five centimeters. I think this is all from the NCCN guidelines where they recommend four centimeters. Um, and the 15 nodes, 15 nodes, that's, a, that's an important, that's one of those buzz numbers you got to know, 15 nodes with gastric cancer. Uh, how about, what's the role of a uh, splenectomy or prophylactic splenectomy when you're resecting a gastric cancer? So prophylactic splenectomy should not be performed. Uh, only consider this if the spleen or hilum is grossly involved with tumor. Right. So uh, you don't need to do a prophylactic splenectomy unless the, there's tumor involvement of, of the splenic hilum. Uh, okay. And what do we do with, uh, with, uh, T4 disease? So into invading into adjacent structures. Yeah. So you want to remove those adjacent structures on block with the tumor. Okay. So uh, an area of controversy, Kevin, is the level of lymph node dissection needed to do with gastrectomy for gastric cancer. We talk about the D1, the D2. What exactly does that mean? So the D1, uh, dissection is really just the perigastric nodes along the greater and lesser curve. Um, and so this is not a very extensive dissection and, um, that is what is generally done in, in the U S and a lot of places, but the D2 dissection is where you go for the N1 and N2 nodes. So not only you're removing the perigastric nodes in the lesser curve and the greater curve, but you're also skeletonizing the vessels of the common hepatic, the celiac and the splenic arteries, uh, and taking all the lymph node tissue, um, down to essentially the aorta. So we talk about our nodal stations, and if you guys aren't familiar with this, just Google it, look at a picture. It's not that bad to, to memorize the different nodal stations. So a D1 dissection, what, what nodal stations is that? Uh, that's one through six. Yeah, so that's the perigastric nodes along to the greater and lesser curvature stations, one through six. And what's, what's a D2? What stations does that involve in addition to one through six? Uh, that is seven through 11. Okay. And, and there's a little bit like this gets debated a lot, the D1 versus D2. What's, what's really the heart of that, uh, that whole controversy and debate? Um, you know, is recurrence and, and preventing recurrence. And currently in Asia, um, they've shown improved survival with the D2 dissection, but we have been unable to replicate that with studies in the U S um, that we have the studies in the U S have not shown that D2 dissections have, improve survival, but they do have increased morbidity and mortality with those. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we, maybe we should have a journal club at some point about the different studies and some of the different, you know, the critiques of the different studies going into the D1 versus D2. But again, that's a standard in Asia is the D2 dissection. Their studies have shown uh, a survival benefit. We have not been able to replicate that. So the current NCCN guidelines recommend for an R0 resection with at least a D1 or a modified D2 lymph node dissection. But again, basically the node, the number you need to know is 15. You have to get 15 nodes. So as long as you have an R0 resection, you got the 15 nodes, uh, you're good. So wait, Jason, I, 
for a long time, I, I had a hard time figuring out what the R's are for these resections. Can, can we go over those? Sure. So an R, R0 resection is a negative microscopic margin. Um, an R1 resection would be a negative gross margin, but a positive microscopic margin. And an R2 would be a, a positive uh, gross margin on your resection. So the goal is always an R0 resection. Um, okay. How about adjuvant therapy we, well, for, for gas, adjuvant therapy for gastric cancer? What do we need to know? So if the patient had T3, T4, or any node-positive disease, and they then underwent an R0 resection, uh, then you should consider the patient for adjuvant 5-FU chemoradiation. Yep. So uh, again, those are important distinctions. No. T2 disease gets uh, neoadjuvant therapy. Uh, uh, you know your lymph nodes. You need 15 nodes with a D1 or modified D2 and R0 resection. And then any patient who has a T3, T4, or node-positive disease gets adjuvant therapy after their R0 resection. And that's a you know, 5-fluorocyl uh, or a 5-FU-based uh, chemo, um, chemo radiation regimen. Okay, that was all a lot. Gastric or uh, stomach is a, is a big topic, but let's wrap things up with uh, a couple quick hits. So, um, Kevin, we covered it already, but again, we like repetition. So, you need a little bit more esophageal length during your parasophageal hernia repair. What's an option? The colus gastroplasty. Okay. Uh, Wu, uh, you're unable to swallow your secretions after a Nissen fund application. So the wrap was made too tight. You should return to the operating room. Go back room. to the operating room. That's your answer. Um, okay. Types of ulcers associated with increased acid production. Type 2 and type 3. And what's type 2, type 3 again? So type 2 is the two ulcers. Uh, so you're going to have the lesser curve in the duodenum. And then the type 3 is going to be the prepyloric. Okay. And your type of ulcers uh, created uh, associated with uh, decreased mucosal protection? These are your type 1 and type 4. Okay, what are you going to do if you're doing your sleeve gastrectomy and you see a little hiatal hernia? We, we said that you don't really need to fix hiatal hernias uh, if they're asymptomatic, but you're doing a sleeve and you, you see a, a hiatal hernia. What are you going to do? Yeah, we're now repairing those hiatal hernias at the time of the sleeve gastrectomy. Okay, well, you have a patient who has a history of an antrectomy with Bill Roth II reconstruction uh, in the distant past. He presents with intermittent abdominal pain and distension, which is relieved after bilious emesis, megablastic anemia on laboratory workup. What's the diagnosis? Afferent limb syndrome. Afferent limb syndrome. Uh, multiple duodenal ulcers and gastrin levels greater than 1,000. This is when you want to think of Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. Yep, and that's... that's uh, believe that's pathognomonic, the, the gastrin greater than 1,000. Um, woo, a gastric mass with biopsy, which shows uh, expansion of the marginal zone uh, compartment with the development of sheets of neoplastic small lymphoid cells. What's the diagnosis? It's a maltoma. And uh, what do you treat? Do you take these patients to surgery? How do you treat these patients? And maltoma is actually secondary to H. pylori, and so you can actually treat with antibiotics, triple therapy for H. pylori, and these will typically regress. Yep. So that's 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 a, a very common one. They're, they'll try to get you to, to resect it. So it's a gastric mass. I'm not going to tell you it's a maltoma. They're going to describe it. So look for expansion of the marginal zone and development of neoplastic lymphoid cells, and that's maltoma. And that wraps up our gastric abscite board review. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.